The commitment to realism concerns the question of metaphysics. The status and value of metaphysics has been controverted and disputed for much of the last 500 years. From the advent of Cartesian skepticism to its logical continuation in conscience objectivism, from Heidegger's radical critique of ontotheology to pragmatic and continental projects of anti-realism, what was once considered first philosophy has become arguably the most malign discipline in contemporary philosophical thought. It is commonplace to view metaphysics with suspicion and contempt today. Why? Why has modernity cast metaphysics as a shackle on human reason? Why has postmodernity cast metaphysics as a kind of bondage and violence? And are any of these assessments warranted? In today's paper, I will first consider this critique of Western metaphysics. I will pursue to proceed to a discussion of Thomistic realist metaphysics in light of this critique. And I will then close with a reflection on Thomistic disputatio and how it relates to the question here at issue. Recently, the criticism of metaphysics has been taken up anew by the nihilist philosopher Johnny Vadimo. I would contend that Vadimo's work summarizes the principal contours of this debate. Vadimo advocates a flight from the so-called violence of any metaphysics of objectivity to the freedom of a supposed Augustinian love under the edges of the ama et fac quod vis, love and do what you will. He argues that the discipline of metaphysics is an inherently violent undertaking, stemming from two sources, its classically conceived telos, which consists in the perfect identity of the end supremum, and its presupposition of nature as factum. In Vadimo's view, the latter, the givenness of being, demonstrates the implicit violence of every finality, of every principle that would silence all questioning. But why does Vadimo identify finality and facticity with violence? Why does he maintain that all truth claims, grounded as they are in factical being, inherently lead to domination? Why does he go so far as to equate objectivism with a totalitarian society? Vadimo presupposes the non-foundationalist tradition extending from Nietzsche through Heidegger. Heidegger, who continued Nietzsche's critique of metaphysics, sought to reestablish a bit of the grandeur of classical ontology. Yet he did this by stripping ontology from its classical foundation. For Heidegger, as for Nietzsche, metaphysics was understood primarily as a tool of justification. It was, in Heidegger's estimation, hopelessly foundationalist, precisely because it delimited, excuse me, delimited what could be known and how it could be known. Metaphysics grounds not only intelligibility, but also meaning and history. In a very real sense, it tells us who we are. Because metaphysics ontically grounds and theologically legitimates our current understanding of being, Heidegger deemed all of metaphysics to be ontotheology. In Vadimo's view, Western metaphysics threatens current pluralistic society, precisely because it is predicated on the unity of truth, which is much that we've heard about today. Since Vadimo equates unity and truth with ideology, he opposes on principle any classical metaphysical claims. In fact, Vadimo characterizes Christian metaphysics and belief as a fundamentalism that excludes authentic pluralism. The church's supposed fundamentalism not only grounds for alleged repressive sexual ethic, but also her intolerance of other religions and it justifies her violent evangelistic efforts. Now, it's clear that Vadimo is not underscoring chiefly physical violence. Rather, in his view, any metaphysical act is always an inherently violent act. Our task now is to examine the legitimacy of Vadimo's critique. Several questions present themselves upon consideration of his comments. The first question this critique gives rise to is, whose metaphysics is being critiqued? Clearly, there are different conceptions of metaphysics, both East and West. 
Even within the context of Western thought, metaphysics is not a monolithic thing, as the most cursory consideration of the Greeks or the medievals would demonstrate. The history of metaphysics is both broad and deep. Since the Western critique of metaphysics is at its foundation a departure from realism, it would seem that a distinctly realist metaphysics ought to be engaged, and here we are led to Aristotle and Aquinas as prime examples. Again, since the postmodern critique of realist metaphysics has also taken the form of a critique of so-called ontotheology, it would seem that Thomas metaphysics is a better case study than Aristotle. But more than that, just as Vadimo, in my estimation, is a sort of compendium of the Western anti-metaphysical stance, so too is Aquinas the paradigmatic Western metaphysician. We will begin here. An assessment of the whole of Thomistic metaphysics is beyond the scope of this paper, obviously. But I would like to investigate three elements of Thomistic thought, which are particularly germane to the Western critique of metaphysics. First, I will look at Aquinas' understanding of love as a habit. I contend that with this as a foundation, we might consider metaphysics to be ultimately the love of being. Second, I will examine the Thomistic ordering of the sciences and demonstrate its relation to Aquinas' realism. Third, I will conclude this section with a consideration of the Thomistic conception of truth as an adequation between mind and thing. First, metaphysics as the habit of loving being. Thomas notes that the word habitus is derived from habere, to have. This having can be either predicamental or relational. Relational having is a disposition, either positive or negative, towards that to which one is related. Habit, Thomas tells us, is a disposition in relation to a thing's nature and to its operation or end, by reason of which disposition a thing is well or ill-disposed. <coughs> Excuse me. In other words, the end determines the goodness of the disposition. Within the context of habit, love is a special case, for it is both a virtue, and therefore a stable disposition, and a passion, and therefore prone to movement. As a habit, love is a disposition towards the other, a having of the other, a possession. It is grounded in an affinity for the one towards the other. Hence, love, Thomas writes, implies a certain connaturality of the lover for the thing beloved. And yet, Thomas also admits that love is a passion. Since a passion is the effect of the agent on the patient, then love also implies movement in the natural sense, and not simply stability or final possession. Love, under the aspect of an effect on an agent, points to the inherent passivity, or better, receptivity, of the patient. Love is received by the patient. It is, as it were, the reception of the agent itself. There is a distinction between higher and lower forms of love, which Aquinas distinguishes under the aspect of the love of concupiscence and the love of friendship. Thus, Aquinas writes, quoting Aristotle, that to love is to wish good to someone. The person to whom one wishes good constitutes the object of the love of friendship, as opposed to the goods, plural, that one wishes to one's friend, which constitutes the object of concupiscence. This is because we love a friend for him or herself alone, but we love goods for what they can do for us. True friendship is not grounded in the dissipation of concupiscence, but in the simplicity of love. While it might seem contradictory to consider love as both a habit and a passion, they are conciliated thus. Love incites desire, and when what is desired is obtained, love incites joy. Desire denotes movement towards the object of love, thus it is a passion. Joy denotes the final rest of possession of that which is loved, thus it is a stable disposition or a habit. One could argue that metaphysics can be understood as the disposition of loving being. Under the aspect of a passion, metaphysics enshrines our desire for being. We desire being, and as knowers, we are receptive to being, which acts upon our knowing, even as an agent acts on a patient. 
under the aspect of a habit, we have being. We are always already in possession of being, and ultimately we are the friends of being. Taken together, one might say that metaphysics is a disposition of desiring and loving being, that being which presents itself to us in truth, according to the convertibility of the transcendentals. Metaphysics, therefore, is a disposition of being towards being, of an openness to being or receptivity. But receptivity refuses to dominate what is received. More precisely, it refuses to construct being. It refuses to impose one's will on being. Instead, it is content to receive being, and this in proper relation. In this sense, objectivity is nothing other than the freedom of being to present itself to us as it is, rather than the imposition of one's own thought or will upon it. Such an imposition, I would argue, is more common to projects of both subjectivism and constructivism. Objectivity, therefore, is contrary to its critics, the very opposite of violence. It is relationship, humility, non-dominance. It is love. Metaphysics is to be understood as the disposition of being towards being in love. It is a charitable comportment, not a violent one. This is evident in multiple places in Thomas's thought. In Thomas's ordering of the sciences and the Thomistic understanding of truth is at equatio, we see two concrete examples of metaphysics as charitable comportment towards being. First, the ordering of the sciences, which was covered quite well, obviously, by Father White. Okay, it is important to emphasize that Thomistic metaphysics is not primarily concerned with either the subject or the object, as would be construed by modern and postmodern thinkers. Rather, metaphysics first and foremost concerns being. The consideration of being surmounts the subject-object dichotomy because both subject and object are beings. The history of interpretation of Aristotle's Metaphysics Book 6 has resulted in two chief conceptions of the subject of metaphysics. Some have held that the subject of metaphysics is being qua being. This interpretation was carried forth by Alexander of Aphrodisias and Avicenna. Others held that the true subject of metaphysics is immaterial being. This was the position advocated by the vast majority of commentators, from Asclepius and Simplicius to Averroes. Aquinas, for his part, follows the first interpretation of Aristotle. The subject of metaphysics is being qua being. Therefore, metaphysics concerns both material and immaterial being because it takes up being as ens commune. In short, for Thomas, metaphysics concerns simply what is real. As many Thomistic commentators of the last century and a half have noted, Thomas's innovation and contribution to metaphysics includes the positing of a real distinction between existence and essence in created being. This distinction grounds his metaphysics over and against Plato and Aristotle. This distinction does not, however, imply that for Thomas, metaphysics only takes up essay as the act of being. For Thomas, the subject of metaphysics is ens commune, and as one commentator writes, quote, metaphysics considers reality and the being of things, but in a universal way and without excluding the essence, end quote. <clears throat> Here we see the significance of the well-traversed debate concerning the point of departure of Thomistic metaphysics. Does the point of departure of metaphysics lie in the separatio or in the abstractio? The question concerns whether the speculative sciences proceed by way of abstraction from immateriality, with metaphysics representing the most complete abstraction, or whether metaphysics presupposes the demonstration of immaterial being in natural philosophy and is therefore grounded in this judgment of separation. Following St. Thomas's exposition of the matter in the commentary on Boethius's De Trinitate, which Father White has already stressed the importance of, it seems that Aquinas takes the judgment of separation to be the point of departure of metaphysics. This is, of course, the foundational premise of the River Forest School. 
The separation concerns the difference that obtains between immaterial being, so the unmoved mover proven in physics and the immortal soul proven in faculty psychology, and other beings. It is a judgment of difference that not all being is of this kind, that there is material and immaterial being from which follows the concept of being as such, ens commune, encompassing them both. Fundamentally, the choice of the separatio as the point of departure of metaphysics means that despite the fundamental emphasis that Aquinas places upon being as essay in his metaphysics, ens mobile is the being that we know best and through which we human beings come to know any other kind of being. If the point of departure of metaphysics is in the judgment or separatio, if therefore metaphysics is grounded in natural philosophy, ought not natural philosophy be considered first philosophy? It is clear that for Thomas, though metaphysics is first philosophy in the sense of the nobility of its object, being qua being, natural philosophy is first in the order of investigation or generation. Central to Thomas's ordering of the sciences is the position that the existence of immaterial being must be demonstrated prior to the investigation of metaphysics as noted above, and this to ensure the realist objective stance. Thus Thomas writes, quote, the philosophy of nature would be first philosophy if there were no other substances prior to mobile corporeal substances, end quote. And this is also repeated elsewhere in the commentary on the metaphysics. By this he means that only after we prove the existence of immaterial being in natural philosophy do we find ourselves capable of undertaking metaphysics. Okay, what is the significance of this ordering of the sciences for a contemporary critique of metaphysics? I would argue that the order of the sciences is grounded in Thomas's metaphysics of knowledge and is analogical to it, though this comparison should not be overdrawn. One need not submit to a conceptualist analysis in order to ascertain that the turn to ens mobile, which, proceeds, which precedes the turn to immaterial being, mirrors the movement to conversion to the phantasm and abstraction in Thomas's metaphysics of knowledge. Just as knowledge begins with sense perception, perception, the conversio ad phantasmata, and proceeds to the concept via abstraction, so too do the disciplines according, so too do the disciplines according to the order of generation begin with natural philosophy, grounded in the experience of individual concrete objects before proceeding to the study of being and metaphysics. And yet, despite this ordering, metaphysics is first in the order of perfection, according to Thomas. Just as perception is ordered towards knowing and cannot be at rest until it knows the object, so too is natural philosophy ordered towards metaphysics and finds its fulfillment there. Taken together, Thomas's ordering of the sciences and his overall metaphysics of knowledge are grounded in a comportment of humility before being that allows being to present itself to us. Contrast Thomas's metaphysics with Vadimo's assertion that, quote, metaphysics's need to grasp the origin or arche is deeply linked to hubris, end quote, because it is an expression of the desire to know rather than the desire to love. Since for Thomas, metaphysics ultimately ends in and is therefore oriented towards knowledge of God, a God to whom the human person can only be united in love, that is, for whom love and not knowledge is the criterion of union, there is no conflict between the aims of knowledge and the aims of love. Nowhere is this humility more evident than in the Thomistic conception of truth as adequatio. Truth, Aquinas tells us, is the adequation between mind, ratio, and thing, res, the classical assertion of which we find in the first question of the De Veritate. 
What is important about Aquinas' definition is the line that he draws between the truth of being, that is, how it presents itself to us objectively, and our subjective appropriation of that truth by the mind and judgment. Again, one can see in Aquinas' understanding of truth just how we avoid the pitfalls of a simplistic objectivism or any subjectivism. Truth is always ordered towards the intellect. It is simply to be known as real. Without an apprehending and judging intellect, there is no truth. Does this mean that Aquinas really is a subjectivist after all, since he says that truth in its fullest and most perfect sense is the truth of the intellect? No, <coughs> because he at the same time holds in view the essential intelligibility of being, which is precisely its power lent to the intellect to conform itself to it. In other words, the truth is first and foremost the truth of the intellect. The power of adequation rests in real being. Truth is therefore both in the, int the intellect and the thing. Being makes the mind conform to it through its intelligibility. Judgment determines the truth of being. Here we see the beautiful interplay of the Thomistic system. We are not, as intelligent persons, simply automatons, encountering an environment or field of being upon which we have no role to play, casual observers of being. But neither are we the measure of being. Rather, we are receptive to being as it presents itself to us and we confirm the truth of being in our judgment. There is, for Aquinas, no dominance over being. The dominance over being would better characterize, as I said before, a contemporary discourse. There is instead right relationship. Vadimo raises the question whether the entire tradition of metaphysical inquiry is inherently violent and domineering. But given our considerations, perhaps a better question is, is modern subjectivism or postmodern constructivism inherently violent? Vadimo presupposes that any effort to attain objective metaphysical knowledge is inherently flawed. Yet does it not do violence to impose ourselves upon the objects of our world in which being presents itself to us? Does it not do violence to reshape the other in my own image? Does it not do violence to inform being rather than to receive being? And is it true charity to prohibit the object from making itself known as independent of my own volition or rationality? Ultimately, it would seem that the habitus of metaphysics better expresses the rightly ordered relationship between person and world than does the sort of subjectivism and constructivism that Vadimo advocates. For to be metaphysical is simply to love being. Okay, our last section, disputatio. The realism that forms the foundation of Thomistic thought pervades the whole of his project, its philosophy and its theology, its method and its form. For this reason, we might consider the Disputatio, the form in which the Summa, among other texts, is written, as the form of Thomistic realist metaphysics, and this we might find quite instructive. For just as metaphysics, as it has been defined in this paper, is the openness to being as such, to a sincere love of being as it presents itself to us, and not as a mere extension of myself as refracted through my own subjectivity, so too is the disputatio, the specific linguistic form of this openness to being, to the other as he or she presents themselves to us. And for this reason, I would argue that it is paradigmatic for academic discourse. No doubt, the form of the medieval questionis disputata precedes Aquinas, and yet it would be hard to argue that there is another who brought the form to such a level of perfection. By the time of Aquinas, at least two forms of disputata reigned, the dialectic approach and that of the questionis. Departing from Book 8 of Aristotle's topics, the dialectical form was grounded in discourse as competition. The point was to best one's opponent. 
In the questionis disputata, on the other hand, the opponent was replaced with the interlocutor, alongside whom one is engaged in a sincere search for the truth. This form of disputatio is grounded in dialogue rather than competition. The questio itself, which preceded the questionis disputata, were grounded in close readings of foundational texts and the clarification of truths found there. This is extended in the disputatio. What is of importance is that in disputatio, the truth is sought precisely by attending to the sincerest held and most convincing and cogent objections to one's own view. It is to the credit of Thomas and those who follow closely in his footsteps that straw man arguments were impermissible, as was ridicule or posturing. Joseph Pieper notes, in fact, that many times Aquinas presents the opposing view <clears throat> more convincingly than the interlocutor, so convincingly that Aquinas at times has been interpreted as advocating the opposing position. And this would be abundantly obvious if he ever tried to teach Aquinas to undergraduates. <laughs> <Actually>. <laughs> the point was to discern <clears throat> the truth about a particular issue, to discern what conforms to reality, to the way things really are, to a reality that exceeds in its fullness my grasp or that of others to fully penetrate. If the disputatio employed by Thomas could be summarized in a word, it would simply be dialogue. In its 12th and 13th century form, the disputatio was constituted by first, the careful establishment of objections, and secondly, an appeal to tradition prior to the exposition of one's own view. In this, the disputer took on a twofold listening posture, listening both to the objector and to one's own tradition. The point was not to harmonize the two voices, a modern strategy, which again might lend itself to domination or hegemony. In a potentially unresolved disputation, one does not only listen to the other, but also if it is true dialogue, one must speak. This is a radical departure from more recent projects in academic dialogue. Nor is the point simply to listen with an understanding that the truth cannot be ascertained. Rather, the point is to listen, presupposing that one's interlocutor has a contribution to make towards understanding the truth. This contribution may take the form of a correction of one's own viewpoint or as a clarification of the truth gleaned from the error of the interlocutor. To again turn to Pieper, disputatio is directed fully at the interlocutor as a person and it draws its vitality from respect for the other's dignity, dignity and even from gratitude towards him. By the time of the 13th century, disputatio was a foundation of both teaching and research in the university. And in fact, Thomas considered the spirit of the disputatio equivalent to the spirit of the university itself, that latter being a quote from Pieper. Vadimo's characterization depicts traditional Western metaphysics as a violent imposition of my will on the other. But a sympathetic look at the nature of Thomistic disputatio reveals, quite to the contrary, a search for truth characterized by careful attention and sincere listening and receptivity. Thomas's ordering of the sciences and his understanding of truth as adequatio exhibit the humility that undergirds his whole metaphysics, a humility that is open to being as it presents itself to us. And Thomas's conception of love as a habit provides suitable language for understanding his own metaphysics as a project of love of being. Rather than a paradigmatic instance of hegemonic control over another, Thomistic metaphysics offers a clear lesson in humility and a sincere quest for truth. In our current age of echo chambers, fake news, and fractious academic discourse, 
Thomistic disputatio could actually teach us much about collaborative inquiry. If we dis dismiss it too easily and inaccurately as hegemonic will to power, we forfeit, we, sorry, excuse me, we forfeit an example we so desperately need. The great Thomist, Father Reginald Garagou Lagrange, contended that the value of Thomism for our present age lies in the fact that it restores the love of truth for the sake of truth itself. And here we return to the theme inaugurated by Professor Cavadini. He argues further that this, natural that this natural disposition of openness to truth, to being, is the natural foundation for the supernatural gift of divine charity. Here he summarizes, I think, what Thomistic realism can offer the modern academy. Thomistic metaphysics considers reality in light of its otherness, in light of its being, rather than strictly in relation to an individual's subjectivity or private or even social constructions. Being in the Thomistic system comes to meet us, and we are not free to determine how and in what form it will do so. In modernity, a basic choice had to be made, which is prior. Modernity chose knowledge over being, and so subordinated reality to the rational eye. Postmodernity too had a choice to make between knowledge and personal freedom, and chose the seeming freedom of anti-realist constructivism. But appearances can be deceiving. The choice of knowledge reduced reality to the human mind alone, and the results of this in colonialism, environmental crisis, etc., have been punishing. The choice of constructivism has reduced reality to the infinitesimally narrow box of human women will, and the results are no less severe. The remedy is a robust realism that allows the other, the other as nature, as persons, or as being itself, to present itself to us as such, and to be loved in its own autonomous value. Thank you.